Hi, this is Women in Justice, and my name is Dr. Shantae James. It has become difficult within this time period to discuss certain topics. As an academic, I'm frightened by this aspect. The key to me is to always have a forum where we discuss different aspects to ensure growth. This is one of the reasons why I entered the academic realm. If we lose this aspect, we all have lost. Thus, I felt it was important to turn to an expert in the field that has many accolades, Dr. Wanda B. Knight. She may mention a few in her introduction, but one accolade that I must mention is that she became the college's first assistant dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, on August 16, 2021. Before we officially start, let me mention that DEI is a term used to describe policies and programs that promote the representation and participation of different groups of individuals. DEI encompasses people of different ages, races, ethnicities, abilities, disabilities, genders, religions, cultures, and sexual orientation. So it's a lot. All the hot topics in the media today. Let me now turn the podium over to Dr. Wanda B. Knight as she tells us all a little about herself. Okay, well, thank you so much for this opportunity. I feel that it is an honor to to be here, to um, have this opportunity to speak with you. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, I am a, um, a person who's committed to whatever it is I, I, take, I undertake. And oftentimes that is work that deals with justice, actually. Um, and it is about a lot of social justice and legal justice, um, although I don't operate professionally in the area of legal uh, stuff. But um, I have been at Penn State um, over 20 years and um, where I serve currently, my home is in University Park uh, in terms of my academic home where I serve as an, um, um, a professor of art education, African-American studies, women's gender and sexuality studies and bioethics. And um, I am one of few who have um, made the rank of full professor um, through Penn State at all levels. And um, I currently serve as the president of the National Art Education Association. It is the largest, um, um, it's the largest professional association in the field of art education. So, um, and I'm the first woman of color to ever have achieved that role of president uh, in a mostly um, white organization. Uh, and part of that is having to uh, push and call out the notion of racial discrimination and some of the other injustices that existed. So I, I did um, step up on a national stage and start talking about it with research and showed the evidence. And as a consequence, I became more involved um, in talking about the issues through our association, which ultimately led to to my election. Um, not that that was my uh, what I was hoping to achieve initially, but that was the outcome. Um, people started to understand and see more of what I believe they could not see. They just couldn't understand why this wasn't happening, why we weren't diversifying our field. But yet, um, part of that was about consciousness raising, which is also a lot of the work that I do. 
How do we help people understand and see what they can't see? Okay, so you gave me a lot. So I'm going to step you back a, a, a little bit at a time so we can kind of process several things. And I know we only have a short amount of time. So we, um, I'm saying this really to the audience. Please don't kill me. I'll have her back. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about, let's start off with some terms first. How do you define justice? Justice to me is um, about fairness. And, um, and and I say that in a real simple way, because if we are fair, then we're taking all those things into consideration, looking at, um, and justice to me is not just legal justice, but social justice. And um, it also has a form of equity. Equity is fairness. Um, you know, giving people um, the proportional, um, thinking about what is is needed to have an equitable or fair outcome. And that's what I see justice as. It's really leading toward a particular outcome, which is fair. Okay. And leading toward that outcome, how does that apply practically? Because I think part of the process for me is trying to process, well, can I? how am I being fair to everyone in the room? So how do you see, because I know you wear various hats on campus um, and she does everyone. How do you do that to make sure you're fair to everyone? And then the bigger question to me, how do you ensure fairness so you have sustainability? Well, I, well that's a great question. Um, I think fairness, everybody has different needs. And I'm thinking of the notion of needs. That's why we have diversity. And we must consider the diversity in terms of um, what is created, where are the barriers, what is created in equities, looking at dominant systems, um, policies, practices that may not, um, that may be disproportionately uh, harming some. So really justice to me is when people, you don't cause harm um, and, or, or you, you are, um, you know, mediating the harm. And I think that you got to constantly think about who and the what and the, the why and the circumstances um, that, that caused whatever it is, the thing that we are looking at that needs to be, um, you know, made whole um, or, or somehow uh, brought to a form of justice. And, and to sustain it, I think we constantly got to reflect um, and we got to look at power differentials and, and our way of looking at things and interrogate ourselves. Because particularly when we are in a position to make certain decisions, we really need to look at, you know, our positions, why it's just or why it's not. Um, look at the person, what biases we may bring a, a, about a person or a situation or a circumstance that affects an outcome. So I think if we constantly interrogate self, look at looking at all of those kinds of issues, then we we may be able to sustain that practice. And also asking other people, um, using you know using our resources to determine uh, looking at others and what they're doing and do and in relationship to what we're doing. And so there are so many areas and points of connection, but I think those are some of the things that may help sustain our efforts. Okay. So let me step you back to in the sustainability. I think one of the aspects that's powerful about you is that in many avenues or lanes that you stand in, you're the first person to of color to be standing there. Um, so walk me through a little bit of relating that to this issue of sustainability and how you see you being the first 
impacting future generations behind you? Wow, that's great. Um, I think there's power in representation visually um, and that sometimes generations that may feel or that may come after, you know, you may say, well, there's somebody who did, you know, blaze that that trail. Um, one positive, despite the, the tremendous workload and the uh, enormity of the the work, I think that being the first, sometimes you get to lay a foundation. You get to to build an infrastructure like I currently do here. The work that I'm doing here at Penn State Harrisburg, I'm building an infrastructure. And in doing so, it's just not the frills and the glitter. It has to be foundational level stuff that's being built with the idea of integrating it and threading it throughout the system to warp in the weft of that tapestry. And as a consequence um, and a bonus, I believe then no matter who's in that role of that position, that infrastructure exists and it's something that can be built upon. And the scaffolding would also be important. When you build something, you got to think about how you scaffold it so that it is sustainable because if it's too much too quickly and it, it doesn't last, uh, but it has to be built with intentionality, with foresight, hindsight, and insight. So all of those areas help one in this, doing this inaugural and foundational kind of work. We got to know from the past, what happened? How do we get to where we are? Insight, we're looking around, how are we still in this position in order to have foresight to say now, how do we move forward? So how do we get there? Where are we going? And, you know, looking back as well as, you know, what led us to this and how do we get to this next stage of what it is we want to achieve. And in achieving those next stages, what hurdles, especially you being a woman of color and a female, what hurdles have you come into contact with? Ooh, all kinds of um, hurdles are, are always there. There are those that are inherent, um, first and foremost. But then there are people when you're fairly outspoken and you're bold and brazen and doing the work, want to um, sometimes sabotage your efforts. There are cultural wars going on. Uh, there are people who minimize the significance of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging or the work that we do. There are people that um, don't don't value you as a human being um, because I come with multiple um, um, multiple identities that can intersect to create greater forms of oppression. And especially when we talk about it or bringing it up, people make you feel as though you should just be grateful to be in this dominant space and you should be happy that we allow you to be here rather than I belong here. So yeah, there, there are so many um, different, you know, things that constantly become barriers. But when I see the barriers or I feel the barriers, I think about how do I move beyond them, around them, over them, you know, however. But the goal is to get to the other side. And sometimes that, that requires networking. It requires uh, multiple strategies. But rarely do I say, well, and become a victim to this is because I'm black and I can't do anything else. I'm a black woman. I'm a black woman who initially hailed from a household lower socioeconomic in the deep south with racial segregation and other forms of oppression. 
you know, that gives me um, energy sometimes to move beyond it because I know that there I stood on the shoulders of certain ancestors and all, really all ancestors. And I know that I have to do more and better for future generations. And hopefully I'll lay a, a legacy for others in a similar fashion. So I, I don't, I, I use that as, as my motivation oftentimes, because I think about what they had to endure. And to me, some of the things that I endure is minimal. And in laying that foundation, especially to me in the cultural wars that we are in now, how does that play out in the sustainability of DEI programs? Because some, you know, especially around the country, they're looking to close the doors to DEIB. Um, how do you, or what does the research, because I know you have the research to back it up too, what does the research, research say and the changes that are being made and then the changes that need to be made? Well, um, the, the research says that, um, well, we know that the research tells us this work is valuable um, and everybody benefits from the work. Um, and even, even without research, I know enough effort that I've put into the work, enough of my observations, enough of my research says that everybody benefits. And um, with the cultural wars, I think we have to stay the course. You know, oftentimes um, we, we can't shrink back. That's one of the, I think we can build work to build coalitions. And sometimes um, that requires advocacy in a different way. And then other times we literally have to fight and stand our ground because there is, we can see democracy being eroded if we step back and we have to question why people are wanting certain voices to be silenced. Why? And who benefits from those uh, voices being silenced. How is that progressive? We just have to ask questions. And when we get answers, we have to question the answers that we get because um, we cannot move backwards given the progress that we have made. And the goal in calling out or calling in some of the inequities that we see it does not, it's not designed to harm anyone, but to deny it and pretend that it doesn't exist or erase voices or silence people, defund diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, defund positions. I would hope that, that others would step up and stand in the gap and, and see and show how this is beneficial to our society and to just having human qualities and empathy that we are better based on our diversity, based on um, what we hope to achieve. And if we are a great country, how can we come even better and serve all of our citizens in the way in which they need to be served? Not, not the people in power that have the power dynamics to make decisions without the agency of others. And in serving others and empowering more voices, I want to step back to the comment that you made earlier about the issue of intersectionality. Um, how does that play into including more voices? And where do you want us to understand that, that aspect? So intersectionality to me, um, everybody, is, everybody has entangled social realities. 
And in thinking about the entanglement of those, it's more complicated than we think. So it warrants people looking at self, always being self-reflexive. You know, who am I? Um, what do I bring? Uh, we can come and, and tell each other, tell our stories. There can be people who do research related to any of those, do autoethnographies. And, but the narrative is really what I'm, I'm focusing on. And rather than me just telling, you know, the one aspect of who I am. Now, some of our identities are more salient than others. And sometimes the consequences are greater. Uh, but again, this is not about whose oppression is greater than another. But the point is we're all, um, we have intersections within our identities. And when we have those conversations, you know, we start to understand. And hopefully through understanding each other and hearing each other's voices, now that that's not just pie in the sky, we'll gain greater understanding. We may not have to agree with each other or even, even like each other, at least we're informed and we are more awake and we're woke. I know that's that's bad language for some people because that's what, what people, some are pushing against. But to me, these allow us to, anytime you have conversations versus shutting them down, then we're moving towards something that's more sustainable. And let me give you the flip. So the flip to that argument would be, should a certain identity be the priority? So if I'm looking at a Black woman, should my race be the priority? Should my gender be the priority? And is taking the platform of that intersectionality, in essence, dividing us more so than bringing us together? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, see, I don't see myself as all of these segregated parts. I'm a whole. And but the irony of it is people, how they identify me, they won't say a woman who is black. They'll say a black woman. So the precursor is black or the race or the ethnicity. So therefore, people provide some salience to that itself. But it can be divisive, but by the same token, um, I don't know that it's any less divisive. I don't know that it brings us any further or closer together. It's just recognizing that we're whole people as opposed to, okay, your gender today. And I saw that when, you know, the Obama was running against Hillary Clinton, the women's caucus that I belong to said, well, Wanda, cool. Now that we're going to have a possibly a woman president, that should make you happy. And I'm thinking, but there's a black person who was identifying as black, doesn't matter if how he said I have a you know Nigerian father and a white mother, but was being identified as black. That had significance to me also, but they made an assumption. So I do see myself as a whole. And I tell people that I, I come to you as a whole person that has these multiple identities. And even when I think about race, there's not one part of my race. When I do DNA, I'm part white, I'm part Asian, and I'm a Sub-Saharan African but you see a dark skinned woman, but I am all of those things with different percentages that people may be shocked to, to know just by looking at me. And I would assume too, that assumptions are made by looking at the individual. Absolutely. That's how people judge um, what they see. And, um, and even, and even when, um, and people don't even know, cause I did a lot with DNA. I did a lot of work, work and research with DNA. And we had people who had darker skin tone than I am that were 76% European. And then they had people with blue eyes and blonde hair that were 69% Sub-Saharan African. 
So the 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 this is just a you know a, a face and um, certain phenotypical characteristics where people make assumptions. This is what black looks like. It's got larger lips and wider nose and you know hair texture. Certain kinds of things that they decide when they look at an individual. This is what makes this person a woman or a female gender, you know, kind of decision-making. And when you have the ambiguity, that's when people get confused because they're like, I don't know what they are. Is this male, female? Is that a trans? Is... So now it starts to become a little bit discombobulating because now we are affirming or denying what they already perceive given what they have seen. And do you see that as us subconsciously or consciously saying to each other, there's a master, like there's a master status that you're trying to portray to the world. So if you don't fall within that master status, then you are the other. You you are the other. So that that master, that dominant, and and I really sometimes struggle with that word master. I know, I know, and I threw it. That's but, why I threw it out to you because <laughs> yeah, exactly. I figured you did because you knew it would be a little jarring there. Because the notion of master is, you know, again that 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 superior dominant power differential. Um, um, and, and you think about power dynamics when you're the master, you, you are the supreme you're, you're over the master key opens everything, opens every lock. Um, so I think that the notion of master is, um, it does, um, some people lean toward those, um, areas that would be perceived to be more favorable in the so-called master's eyes or using the lens of the master. So let me shift you just a little bit. Um, sure. As we're looking at women and based upon your research and your various positions that you have, what do you think that we're missing in the conversation? What are we missing? You, yeah, I know you put out that intersectionality, but what else do you feel yeah. like? Well, you've heard this, but you haven't heard this. What's the this? to you? I think, um, I don't know that we, we talk enough. I think, I don't know that there's anything new that we haven't heard. Maybe there is a lot of, of talk about certain things, but, um, I would love to see more talk about, I think, patriarchy and, um, it's, it's nature and, um, you know, things about how it came to be. And I think this is the kinds of things that are, are trying to be silenced. Um, not just the cultural, but start talking about patriarchy. And when you start looking at the United States itself to to not have had a woman president in its foundation, that's patriarchy and, and, and politics. And I mean, we can just go over and over looking at the policies. And, and, and I'm wondering at this time, why are we still here? Because there are very competent people who have run, who, but somehow it, it, it ends up being back in the hands of, um, again, men or patriarchs who have made decisions that may sometimes appear to be less than sensitive. And I think a lot of this, what keeps some of the sexist practices, practices that we see, some of the misogynistic things that are allowed to be, some of the violence, again, policies and practices and procedures why they have sometimes eroded from maybe even times that they were in the past. So I think patriarchy, the more we talk about it, um, it's not, and patriarchy doesn't put down 
men per se, but again, it's a system that has been created that we, even if we didn't create it, we are maintaining it and perpetuating it. So do you see the patriarchy as something that's embedded within the structure, a process of socialization, um, or just a lack of the inability for members to take on a new narrative? Because sometimes I question whether or not, especially when I'm teaching, um, some things are ingrained and it takes a couple of lessons before um, that narrative can, like I'm piercing the the narrative. I'm not even breaking it. I'm just, I just tapped on the narrative. Um, where do you think this patriarchy or how embedded is it within the structure? I think it's insidious. I think it's so embedded that it, it just permeates everything. Um, the values that we hold, I think the methods, our institutions, it's, it's everywhere. Um, even when we think about, oh gosh, there's so many things. Um, when I think about power and dominance, when I think about win-lose situations, um, you know, some of the feminist ways, uh, oftentimes we want to look at win-win and when we start to think about um, conflict and war, the way those those narratives are shaped, we got to have war to secure peace. Those are kind of conundrums. That's kind of, you know, tricky spaces. Um, when I think about, you know, authority, authority who's authority and, and who's in control. And who's defining and, it. Yes, exactly. So again, um, when we start thinking about Again, homogeneity and just so many areas, but it's just things that it's like the air we breathe. It's like fish, water to a fish. You just don't notice it. It's there. It's everywhere. So let me ask you this. In addressing it or trying to change the narrative, I'm a big advocate for policy. But I think what we miss in relationship to policy is some definite checks and balances. Where do you stand in relationship? Because I know you have, and you write a lot of policy and you're involved in a lot of it. Where do you see us if it's so embedded within the structure in relationship to policy? I think we got a lot of work to do. Because again, those those policies, um, but but part of it is is starting with with looking at the policies, seeing who's harmed, and who's benefiting from certain policies. And then looking at how can they be restructured to be more equitable, to bring about greater justice. And it requires a coalition of the willing who are not of the same people, because some people see something that they're gonna lose, then they're not as open to changing the policy. And so I'm not convinced that people don't know or that they are oblivious to what's going on. Some people say they are. I'm not convinced because I do think some feel like they're going to lose. So they know that they're privileged. Those policies are privileging them. So it just takes a coalition. And I think it takes steadiness, concentrated effort, commitment, for people to look at policy and and make those changes. And those policies sometimes have been around for centuries. 
and uh, they have become institutions themselves and institutionalized. So how do we, and I see that as a barrier. So again, when I speak of policy, a policy oftentimes are barriers. I think of the word traditions. That's a little scary because when you think about the traditions of men, then that has been itself. And when we follow traditions, we continue to maintain and perpetuate those same things. So those traditions, oftentimes policy related, those traditions are oftentimes um, um, just just baked into the structure of the institution and society and, and all the aspects of life. And we think public, the notion of public policy, that should benefit everyone. That's for the public, not for some people to benefit and have privileges as a consequence of, of the policy and the policy makers. And you think about who are the policy makers? Yes. Usually men. And they are usually um, in dominant roles and then they make it for everybody else. So again, we have to ask those fundamental questions. Who's making the policy and for whom? Who benefits? Who doesn't? So we start to look at those outcomes and not look at deficits in people. But people have assets, but these are deficits and policies that put people at risk, that harm them, that create injustice, unjust systems, systems of oppression. And that's the outcome of why we have multiple systems that are not effective for all people. So is it enough to step back and, and I guess you would be the perfect example of it to say, you know, we have the first in the room. We have two people in a room. Is that enough? Because I'm not sure based upon your last statement, what's going to, I would say, really change that narrative. I think um, two, I don't have, a, there's not a magical number. Sure, and I, I don't want to give the impression mm -hmm. that there is, but oh. I question whether or not one is enough if the structure is not there, as you stated before, to ensure sustainability. Right. I, I don't think one of anything is oftentimes enough because if something happens to that one thing, then it's nothing there. Right. So I think it has, that's why I keep talking about coalitions, and um and 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 people who are willing and i'm thinking it has to be numerous people the masses ideally and who's in the room and who's at the table and just because somebody's at the table doesn't mean that they have they're empowered to do anything other than be forgive me for saying it this way um in this case a black face in a high place it needs to have um, come with a modicum of power, not over people, but with people to empower. So it, that's, that's where we start to see change, where we can be motivators and instigators and people who inspire others. Because leadership, and I want to say that uh, leadership is not a role. Leadership is not a position. Leadership is action. And when your actions inspire others to be better, to do better, then that becomes leadership. And it requires multiple people serving in those spaces that inspire others to be the change that they want to see in the world. 
in the spaces that they occupy. And that also gives hope that change is possible. So we need those kinds of people in, in the masses to do the work. And yeah, some have the face and they're out there leading it, but it's really just that a face or, or the frontline people, but there have to be masses to bring about the kind of change that we need in this world, in our society. Okay, I know we're getting close to time. So um, before we go, um, is there any, let me first thank you though. Thank you for your time because I know you're busy. Um, is there anything else that you want to leave us with before we go in relationship to don't forget this type of deal? Um, You've given well, us a lot. I know you have, but I just want to give you the space to kind of close us sure. out. I, I think we should always have hope. I think hope, um, if we if we have hope, then we we may have the energy to continue to to operate in positions in which we we have the potential to thrive. Um, I think that um those of us who are activists, and I like to think that I'm an activist also, I would like to say that um, you know, use the power of social media mindfully and meaningfully, um, you know, to to get words out. It's just that is a powerful tool and it can be a powerful tool. But it can also, um, you know, have some other consequences. So, again, think about what you can do. We all have our levels of influence. It's not just certain people and it is everybody's job to do this work and to create situations that bring about justice for all people. All right. I know we have to end and I hate the... (laughs) hate to do this but thank you so very much for your time of course i'm gonna have you back um so you you can't say no (laughs) well i won't say no this this is tremendous and i and um and and i i just it's an honor to be here and to talk with you and i value your work and all the things you're doing uh in this space is so critical thank you thank you my pleasure take good care Today, we had a a brief moment to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Dr. Knight brought up so many issues to consider and ponder, especially looking at patriarchy. As you take a moment to walk away from this podcast, I encourage you to make sure that you talk to someone else. You are doing yourself a disservice when you keep the knowledge to yourself. Have a great day. November, November, November. I have a new book coming out on November the 14th. It's a murder mystery, a cozy actually. Over the next few months, I'll be signing books and giving presentations at several locations in PA, Texas, Virginia, New York, and more. You do not want to miss these jam-packed discussion sessions as we talk about criminal justice and mystery writing. You can find my current book signing and events schedule on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. No, I don't dance on any of the social media platforms, but follow me at Dr. Shantae James to find out where I will be in a city near you. See you there.